Okay, thank you for joining everyone. Chuck Morse here at the Morse Force, Monday through Friday, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. And my guest is Richard Story. He is a writer for Arctos. The article is Modern Statism is Western Gnosticism. He has a new book coming out in December, The Uniqueness of Western Law. Richard, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Richard, you came to... Um, I came to your attention because of my interview uh, with E. Michael Jones. We were talking, who is a scholar that I have an enormous amount of respect for, by the way. Um, and I've read many of his books, particularly Degenerate Barnes is my favorite. Um, and um, you sent me an article talking about um, the influence of Gnosticism, which I think is, I don't know, for lack of a better term, somewhat the introduction of esoteric understanding and magic into early Christianity. So I wanna start there and talk about um, the influence of that and its connection possibly to Judaism. Hmm. So I think a good place to start is to, de to define uh, Western Gnosticism. I think when a lot of people hear uh, Gnosticism, they think of uh, cults from uh, early Christian history. Um, I think it's important to understand that this was a, a, a Jewish movement before it was a Christian movement. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, this this kind of thinking, it's uh, very different to what I would call the traditional Jewish or the traditional Christian uh, uh, understanding of, of the world and metaphysics, etc. cetera. Um, uh, it, it has very much influenced uh, Judaism and Christian uh, Christianity. In the modern period, mm -hmm. I think we can describe both Judaism and Christianity as having been through a, a modernizing uh, process over the past 500 years, let's say. And I think this is basically just uh, Jews and Christians uh, becoming more Gnostic. So what is Western Gnosticism? Well, um, the, the academic school of thought has basically identified Western Gnosticism broadly as a movement which is trying to um, create uh, heaven on, on earth, let's say. It's, it's basically deterministic, so it would deny that we have free will and therefore that we have to reciprocate that with each other and there's a, a natural order which is a, which emerges when we do that uh, and it basically says that um, uh, we, we need to have uh, an, an elite group or a, particularly a kind of spiritual elite if you like who are uh, more closely connected with the the destiny of mankind they they've, they've got some kind of x factor whereby they can intuit and, uh, the, the, the destiny of, of a people or all of humanity. And uh, they are the ones who really should be in charge uh, creating uh, states, so creating an artificial order in society to lead us towards this uh, kind of end goal, this kind of utopia, if you want. So it's very utopian as well. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're talking about sounds to me like a very ancient version of what we call communism. Um, this idea that uh, we are, rather than God essentially creating man and descending knowledge to earth, uh, for Judaism, that is the Torah. Christianity is the ministry of Jesus. Instead, we as man have the ability to reach up into heaven, grab God by the throat, pull him down to earth and put him in a prison and uh, you know make him a slave and it's a it's a uh, it's a it's a conspiracy against nature it's certainly a conspiracy against uh, god it is not jewish it's actually as much a heresy in judaism as it is in christianity i heard um, the uh, Whitaker chambers who was a great author of the book witness in the united states um, he was the, uh, the the great spy case in the late 19 40s, when he accused members of the Roosevelt administration of being communists, he had himself been a communist. He uh, describes it as the as the second oldest religion that metaphorically began at the Garden of Eden when Eve went to the uh, tree of knowledge and was tempted by the serpent who 
based on most metaphorical understanding is represented is, is Satan. And was said, you can have knowledge of everything. You can have knowledge of good and evil if you partake of the forbidden fruit. In other words, you can overthrow God and become as God. And of course, by partaking in the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve had the fall and they were banned from the Garden of Eden. And the idea being that um, there is a separation between the mystery, the, the, the creator of the universe, the lawgiver, and man who is created in the image of God. We're not God. We're not perfect. We are imperfect. And this idea that we can create some kind of a utopia on earth is the ultimate heresy, but yet it's something that represents a darker side of human nature. It's been with us in every generation. There's been a conspiracy to try to do just this. And, uh, you know, again, I see it because I'm getting a lot of people saying, well, this is a Jew, a Judaizing influence. And uh, with due respect to him, this is one of the basis of, of E. Michael Jones's book on Judaism. And, and I will respectfully reject that because it is as much a conspiracy against Judaism as it is against Christianity, because it's a conspiracy against nature. Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm in, inclined to agree with you, as you know. Uh, I think in the ancient world, as well as in the, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period, it's very clear that these, uh, this is a movement that's working in parallel within Judaism and within, uh, well, you know, before it was, it was pagan Rome, of course, but within early Christianity and, the, and uh, particularly in Italy in the Renaissance period and all across Europe in the Enlightenment period. Ancient Gnosticism was basically the idea that there is uh, the one, and we, we, we might refer to that as, as, as God, a, a type of God, a sort of deterministic God. And uh, people were either drawn by that one towards itself or, or they were not. They were left to sort of give in to their, their base nature and become more animalistic and, 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 and evil was essentially distance from the one. And the spiritual elite, of course, they, they were very just naturally capable of being drawn towards the one. Um, and uh, so in, in the Renaissance period, this, we see this emerging again. People become very interested in those sorts of writings and uh, Jews as well. And that's clear. And, and that was rejected by uh, Jews of the time, just as uh, certain heretical ideas were rejected within Christianity at that time. And I, I think it's within uh, certain secret societies, particularly later, which, of course, welcomed both Jews and Christians, that these ideas began to take hold again. And uh, they, they, they were not so totally alien in the society because, of course, this kind of Gnosticism where people are either just drawn to the one or uh, just, you know, just, just um, stray away from the one. It has this very deterministic quality, as did uh, Calvinism. So, of course, during the Protestant Reformation, Calvinism was spreading across Europe and it had a very deterministic view of the world. You were either elected by God, in which case you would grow closer to God, or you were uh, reprobate and you would uh, just uh, distance yourself from God. And uh, free will just was not part of the equation. And of course, uh, we see uh, Jews at the time uh, rejecting the idea as well. And so they were just naturally inclined towards these secret societies, which um, had some political clout, political movement. And they, mm -hmm. they, they tried to see about how they could um, create some kind of order in, in this world. And as you said, as you said, Chuck, it, it then started to become more about um, either us uh, becoming uh, God on earth um, in a kind of sort of fatalistic way. Um, or in the, in the case of the Calvinists, uh, for a few hundred years, they had a good go. It was about creating nation states and strong monarchs who would just be, uh, they're obviously part of the elect because they were part of the national church. And so they would 
um, guide people, whether they are elect and they're going to move towards God or whether they're reprobate and they won't. They will create some kind of order so that uh, the world will be safe for, for, for the Calvinists, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the Jews had to carve their own way and carve their own citizenship and get their own rights out of that system as well. But uh, Judaism was changing. A lot of Jews were uh, heavily involved in those secret societies we were discussing before, things like Freemasonry, etc. You, right, you know. Right. Um, but then, well, there's, go on. there's a lot to unpack here. This is great, great stuff. Um, the, you know, the, the, there's this sort of messianic thread that runs through all of these movements in that there's either a man who comes and creates a perfect universe or the people themselves believe that they're messianic. And um, one of the criticisms of Judaism is that um, we have a very different conception of Messiah than Christianity. Whereas in Christianity, it's a spiritual thing. It's you, through the belief in Jesus as the Messiah, you can find salvation, you can have communication with God and that there's an earthly church, that being the Catholic Church, that is there to regulate that Messiah, how it is seen. And uh, and that's why, in a sense, Catholicism, I think, is one of the great moral forces, and it's certainly a more conservative force than, than other churches. Some Protestant churches have tried to emulate it, but as you say, they introduced the idea pretty much under Martin Luther that the uh, the king or the the state would become almost an organic messianic entity that was here to change human nature and of course the ultimate result of that was nazism and um super you know nash hyper nationalism where the state becomes the all-knowing controller of 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 all things uh, moral and even in reality itself but um the jewish concept of the messiah is somewhat of a is somewhat of a hybrid it's different than the christian concept in that the jewish messiah is going to be a we we believe is going to be a man probably doesn't necessarily have to be a jew either by the way because cyrus the great was called a messiah and he was the king of the persians um and he's going but but he's going to do certain specific things and that is lead the people back from the exile into the promised land which is that tiny swath of territory between the jordan river and the mediterranean sea where sovereignty will be established, the temple will be rebuilt, and then you have ushered in a messianic age. Um, It's not by force, it's not to conquer the world, it's different than the Islamic concept of the Mahdi, where you have a world conqueror who subdues the entire planet and who Jesus is supposed to be joining, and then you have the, the day of judgment after everyone who disagrees is killed, it's, it's a modest approach. It's a spiritual approach. And the thing that anti-Semites miss about this is that the Jewish Messiah is not a conqueror of the world. It's a, he may be a conqueror, if necessary, of that tiny piece of land that is actually exactly where the state of Israel is today. So that's already been done. But it's a spiritual movement. The Jewish people have to be spiritually and ethically and morally prepared, as does mankind, for this to occur. We can't make it happen. It's not something that can be done by force. I mean, the reason why you have these ultra-right-wing movements in Israel, the Naturi Carta, why they reject the the Zionist movement, isn't because they're anti-Zionist, they're pro-Zionist. It's because they don't believe that the present political Zionist movement is spiritual enough is holy enough, is moral and ethical enough to affect the coming of the Messiah. And uh, I don't happen to agree with that, but I understand it. It's, uh, it's, it, it does illustrate the moral side of this movement. It's not a physical movement, only physical in the sense of possessing that tiny piece of land, which I don't understand why that is, but that's what God told Abraham. That's how it, the Torah tells us. So I accept that for what, you know, on, on the face of it. But it's not a, a world conquering movement. The Jews are not trying to conquer the world. The Messiah is not a, a dictator, you know, who's going to subdue the planet. That's an Islamic idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
again, with what you've said, there's a, there's a lot to say there. Um, yeah, I, I think that the traditional Jewish understanding is is pretty much along the lines of, of what you've said. I, I think, you know, there's there's debate, obviously, and there's, there's room for debate where people will say, uh, some Jews will say rather, oh, well, the, the Messiah should return first and then we should be led back to the land. You know, some will say that, of course, some... Um, uh, some others, so the, the Messianic Jews, for instance, will say, right. um, oh, but, uh, you know, the Messiah is supposed to come before the destruction of the temple, and we've only got one candidate for that, that's Jesus, so we should accept him as the Messiah. Right. You know, there's different debates surrounding that, but in terms of traditional traditional um, Judaism, I think uh, what you said is basically right. It's not a world-conquering movement. Uh, like that. Um, I was very interested to read uh, your book, actually, uh, discussing anti-Semitism uh, okay. in the, the, the left wing uh, of Judaism. So it's interesting to learn from you a bit more about the struggle within uh, Judaism. Mm -hmm. Because I think that this, uh, this Gnosticizing tendency that, like I say, runs through both Judaism and Christianity, I think it really captures the imagination of a lot of Jewish people, because as yeah. soon as we as soon as we start imagining, okay, there's a, there's a spiritual elite, and they uh, they just intuitively they're just more in touch with God, and they're going to bring everyone uh, to this. Uh, immediately, I think that grabs the attention of uh, a lot of Jewish people. It does. I mean, there's a reason why Jews are more attracted to communism. I mean, and also yeah. there's an old joke in Israel that. Um, when Jesus does come and he's standing at the Mount of Olives and he's wearing that nice white robe with the slippers and that blonde hair and he looks and he's holding his hands up, the Israelis are going to send out a little delegation and they're going to go up and say, welcome to our country. Is this your first visit or is this a return visit? <laughs> and then we'll finally resolve that question. But with regard to the, the business of Jews attracted to communism, look, we don't have the benefits that Christianity has. We don't have a Messiah. We didn't accept the Messiah at the time of Jesus for reasons that are very complicated, and it's probably a little too much for you and I to even begin to get into it. But the fact is we don't have a Messiah that can be regulated. We don't have a Pope. We don't have a College of Cardinals. We don't have what the Episcopal, the Church of England has a version of that. The Lutherans have that. I mean, most Protestant denominations have a version of it. And so we, we, and we, don't have a, we didn't have a nation, you know, we didn't have a state yeah. until 1948. So, you know, whereas Christians had great nations and the Catholic Church, you know, had Spain and Portugal and France and Italy and, you know, and in Germany and, you know, and, and South America. And Protestants had their great states, Great Britain being obviously one. And so we didn't have that kind of infrastructure. We were guests in someone else's home. We were is subject to the vicissitudes of that. And I think the result is that there is an attraction to this idea of a Messiah on earth who's going to physically, you know, conquer the world. And, and, and you know, unfortunately, and it's a heresy in Judaism, and I get into that in my book, you mentioned, why not? Um, and, and the real corrupting figure in that was a false Messiah in the 17th century named Shatezvi. I get very much into that it damaged Judaism in a way that is very profound, that Judaism has never recovered from it. The damage that he did to Judaism is much more severe than, than most people can even imagine, including most Jews. Um, but I wanna get into, again, gonna go back to the Gnostics, because that's what the topic of your article is. Hmm. And um, I've seen anti-Jewish writers, particularly Catholic writers, talk about the 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 uh, the Kabbalah and the Zohar as being a factor that would corrupt and influence Catholicism and Christianity, and that it was it's been referred to as Jewish magic. You know this idea of like um, you know it goes to the Rabbi of Prague, um, Yehuda Lowe, who according to legend created a golem yes. by, by by breathing by putting magic numbers and led us into a pile of earth and then breathing it into the earth. And now suddenly it, it returned to Superman, kind of a precursor to Frankenstein, actually. And, um, you know, other of these kind of magical things that the Kabbalah would unleash. And I think that there's a misunderstanding about the Kabbalah. 
I think the Kabbalah probably, I don't know the exact origins of it. You may have more information, but I think it's probably as much Catholic as Jewish because the Kabbalah introduces a trinity, by the way, to Judaism, which had not been there before. And the end time scenario in the Kabbalah is a lot more in common with the book of Revelations than anything in Judaism. It certainly doesn't reflect even Ezekiel, who was probably the closest prophet to discussing end time scenarios along with Joel. And so I don't know, what are the origins of the Kabbalah? And I also want to talk a little bit about how the Kabbalah is to be approached. Well, um, the, the actual origins of uh, the Kabbalah uh, will probably remain uh, a mystery. But uh, I mean, what, what it's, it's supposed to originate, you know, it's supposed to be super ancient, obviously, sure. that, that's the claim of it. I think the reality is, Chuck, when, we, when we're talking about uh, Neoplatonism, uh, which is uh, basically it was a continuation of the philosophy of Plato, and it was hundreds of years after Plato, people still trying to get to grips with Plato and the, his followers afterwards and trying to kind of systematize his thinking. So the problem is so we've got that, we've got Kabbalah also uh, from the ancient world. We've got all these other ideas, uh, really, without going into too much detail with those others. But basically, they're all influencing each other across the Mediterranean. People are sharing ideas. Um, and, it, it, you know, you were, you were talking about uh, as well the, the story of, of, of the golem in, uh, in uh, kind of late medieval, should we say, Renaissance uh, times. Well, at, at that time as well, of course, um, you have other stories from that period. You've got like a Faust. Faust is a kind of sort of Gnostic right. kind uh, story. Oh, great, right. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly, and then and then this the popularity of this kind of thinking, this more modern thinking, it just increases, increases right until we get to say seventeenth century. I'd say it was, and, and again, that's when you said that there was a kind of false prophet, yes. mm -hmm. you might say in in uh, in Judaism, which you know totally swept people away. Well, we had all kinds of crazy movements as well very similar in some ways if we're thinking about this in terms of the the gnostic mindset going on uh, in the european mindset at large that's as well right. that's right um, so i mean we, really we you know we can we can go back we can go forward but really i think it's it's very important to see this as just one um stream of thought one kind of psychology that's uh, really impressed itself on the minds of uh, everyone whom it has touched uh, from those ancient times, from let's say uh, pre-Christian times, uh, Greek, uh, Greco-Roman times as well, until now. And people might say, well, well, now, well, it's still affecting us. People aren't theists. People don't believe in the one, and we're getting towards that. People are atheists, basically. Well, they're openly atheists. Right. Well, uh, I would say, well, no, that they are extremely uh, Gnostic. I would follow the thinking of uh, uh, John Gray, he was an Oxford professor. He uh, wrote uh, an interesting, slightly strange book uh, called The Soul of the Marionette. And he argues that uh, the thinking today is, is basically deterministic. So we don't actually have, sorry for that, we don't actually have a free will. Uh, we, uh, instead, we're just sort of uh, bouncing around in society, hoping that the, the elites will sort of lead us uh, to utopia uh, through science, so through the, the scientific method, no no logic, nothing like that, no a priori thinking, just uh, through this empirical process, eventually, uh, and, and we trust in this, we have faith in this process, most people do, most modernist people do, uh, we will arrive at some kind of utopia and we will have somehow uh, mastered uh, nature, certainly our own nature, but also the nature around us. And um, I want to link that as well with what you said about how uh, Gnosticism brought to Judaism this kind of libido dominandi, they call mm -hmm. it. Yes. Will, will to power, if you like, to use the- Right, will to power as opposed to the individual, sovereign individual under God, which yes. is the Judeo-Christian understanding it comes from the book of genesis that man and women it does say women also 
are created in the image of God. We're not God. We're not perfect. We're not all-knowing. In fact, we have a very limited ability at a very limited time and a, a limited piece of sovereignty. But, you know, we, because only God is sovereign, but we uh, have the will to either do good or do evil, to sin or to succeed. You know, in Judaism, there's a whole concept of doing mitzvahs, which is trying to follow the commands of God, which nobody can do completely. But we have a free will to either do those or not. It's um, there's no, you know, we determine. I mean, the entire Torah from the from the moment of uh, Abraham right up to the moment of, right up to Ezra deals with uh, the when the children of Israel do good, then then blessings come upon them, and when they fall back in, into into a lower spirituality, then curses fall upon them. But they're the ones who determine this i mean and they know how to be good because it's outlined in the torah in most cases they don't choose that but uh you know in, in many cases we as individuals don't choose it either and there's consequences to that i mean in in life but we do determine our own destiny to a pretty large extent and you know within the context of of limitations in our of where we live so i don't understand with this determinism came about, but, um, you know, it does wrap itself in the garments of science. The Calvinism, I suppose, was all about that. Um, you know, the uh, I just want to also just get back for a second to the Kabbalah, because um, the Kabbalah in Judaism, it's not Torah, it's not Talmud, it's not official canon, you know, but it is a useful tool to people who know what they're doing. You know, you, nobody, you don't have Madonna come out and start talking about Kabbalah. You have to, you know, there, there, are, there are conditions. You have to be at least 40 years old, for one thing. You have to be a person of spiritual success and, and material success. You have, to, you have to be employed with a family. You know, there are all these conditions for, for somebody who's qualified to study Kabbalah. You know, very similar to the conditions that were put in place for membership in the Sanhedrin, which codified the Talmud in the first in the first centuries of the Common Era, and 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 once you get to those conditions, then you look at Kabbalah in a way that enhances belief in God. Not in an you know it has to have a moral and ethical content to it, and if you take away that moral and ethical content, and you just go to the the wonders of it, and it's an incredible, powerful thing. Then you end up opening the door to Satan. You know, then you end up with mischief. So, you know, to take a look at certain Jewish thinkers who were corrupted, not to mention Christian thinkers like Johannes Ruschlin and uh, and John Dee, who, um, who Michael Jones writes about very well, and their influence on, on Christian states, they're taking the, they're not qualified to study Kabbalah. They're just going for the magic, you know? They're yeah, going yeah. for like the, the, the feel good stuff without the moral and ethical content. And the result is that it opens a portal for Satan. It's very dangerous. It is uh, a but, very dangerous doctrine. I, I can totally understand why you, yeah, you, I, you'd say that. I mean, I, I, would, I would draw an analogy and I would say it would, it would be much the same as, a, say, a Christian who wanted to then go and read about, uh, uh, well, the philosophy of Plato or Aristotle mm. or, or something like that. Um, if, if they don't have as much understanding um, and then they're, not, um, they're not prepared enough to systematize this properly, it could have disastrous effects. And you know, I I know this quite well because I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, philosophy and theology and how law particularly changed in the medieval period. And I know that bizarre theology brought about basically by um, you know a, a few scholastics who started reading a bit too much into Aristotle or bringing in too much, shall I say, uh, from Aristotle and uh, and Plato, the neo Neoplatonic writers as well. Mm -hmm. um, it, it had pretty disastrous consequences, lasting consequences um, on uh, on law, particularly Western law, and it did re uh, lead to the rise of uh, of statism, and uh, it, it basically opened the door, quite you know, literally, to uh, all of this Gnostic thinking.
in the the Christian world, and uh, uh, you know, Christian uh, Christendom has uh, gone. It's it's been gone for about five hundred years now. Um, and not totally, you know, we, not totally, and neither is Judaism totally. But well, they've yeah, they've uh, co-opted. I mean, it's been compromised. It's been co-opted to a certain extent. I'm not as pessimistic about that. I think you and I are here talking about it. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, that's a fair point. Yeah, that's fair. But I know what you mean. I mean, as, and I agree, Judaism certainly also has been seriously compromised by this Gnostic movement. So I want to talk a little bit more about that and some of its modern origins. We talked about the fact that it occurs in every generation. I think it's what the Bible talks about when they complain about when God warns about idol worship. It's idol worship. It's a, a false god. It's a graven image that is created instead of God and that um, is manipulated by the imperfect hand of a people, a man, of these elites who claim to have the knowledge of the Garden of Eden. I mean, they're the ones who tell the rest of us that they're, you know, they think they're Moses coming down from Mount Sinai every day and, and going to rule the, over the rest of us. And, uh, and in modern times, it's manifested itself. You know, we talked about Shate's V. We talked about some of the Christian messianic movements like, uh, you know, the, the Anabaptists and, uh, and John Huss and his, his heresy um, and, and the Munster and some of these other people. And, you know, they all kind of made their inroads. But it really started to take off in the 18th century or maybe the 17th century with the establishment of secret societies that were made up of people who operated behind the scenes, who were out of view, and who were very powerful and elite people. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so in the, the article, I, I discuss um, how uh, Freemasonry uh, was uh, changed. Uh, well, I mean, uh, Freemasonry already did have a slightly political bent to it. Sure. I mean, the, the idea of Freemasonry was essentially to um, continue the, the, the throwing off of uh, spiritual authority, which had uh, begun uh, during the Reformation. Um, and it, it, it basically um, harbored a lot of the Enlightenment thinking, thinking which, of course, uh, came to the fore in the French Revolution, mm -hmm. uh, which thought that uh, man uh, can uh, just using his rationale, um, create an artificial order, uh, which would be superior uh, to the one of the, the old order, so from the, the, the medieval period onward, and of Latin Christendom, which I said ended about kind of 500 years ago. And of course, that was very successful, and it, it's been uh, hugely popular. Um, and I, I think, as I said before, that it was able to survive a lot more in uh, Protestant countries, where, of course, it wasn't outlawed mm -hmm. uh, or considered heresy as it was in the uh, Catholic countries. Um, however, just setting it aside, uh, the, the you know, talking about the, the Illuminati, how that arose and, and how it collapsed, how uh, it was shut down because it was too political uh, in Bavaria. Um, I, I think really what what has superseded the the, the secret societies is uh, the the determinism. So it's this total disbelief in free will. I think in the elites, it's very present because um, I mean it, it's almost a cliche that you'll have uh, certain kings and others who feel that they're just guided by destiny. It's their destiny for this and that to happen, which of course is quite a, it was almost a fatalistic thing to think. Certainly it's deterministic. Certainly mm -hmm. it's, it's not taking into account one's free will. Right. Uh, uh, you're just flowing down the stream. Uh, you know, the, the, there is a tide among men, I think, uh, as Shakespeare put it in Julius Caesar. And, um, so, uh, but in the common man, of course, in the Protestant countries, they were all deterministic as I said, because they were Calvinists. And so they emphatically uh, denied uh, free will. And that was hugely popular. It was just taken as part and parcel with uh, denying the authority of the Pope and other things like that. And the Calvinists were also uh, very much involved in any sort of conflict going on in Europe. Because uh, of course they were fighting for religious freedom uh, which was, you know, a long old struggle for them. Um, 
you know, just for an example, I don't think a Baptist could attend university in England, uh, let's see, uh, 120 years ago, maybe. It was even still illegal for them att to attend. Um, so that was a long old struggle. So they would always be ready to fight in revolutionary wars to acquire more rights and that kind of thing. And of course, the elites were very happy for them to do it because, of course, uh, they wanted to establish nation states. It didn't matter if the king was going to be in charge for a couple of hundred years. That could all change fairly quickly because they had the money, mm -hmm. uh, the bourgeois, the bureaucrats. They were the they were the new kingmakers, really. And they were the ones who required a uh, nation state. Then they would needed to have a national church, national currency, uh, national a standing army, all of these things. So to optimize control, to really establish this artificial order. Um, and, and of, of course, I mean, the Jews played their part as well yes. in all of that. Uh, but again, I, I, you know, it, it would be very easy, and it is very easy, for uh, certain Europeans, you know, ethnic Europeans, shall I say, to say, oh, well, it was all the Jews doing this, because look, I can point at this Jew in history, and, uh, and there'd be right. so many names, there'd be a lot that you could point at. There would be a lot you could point at. Yeah, and that's, sure. of course, that's fair. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm looking at, uh, you know, pretty much like the majority of, of what was Christendom, Right. Um, right. doing basically the same stuff, all the stuff that they would accuse the Jews of, of, of doing. It uh, goes back to the Garden of Eden. It's this idea I of man. I mean, Whitaker Chambers said it best. I really admire it. It's a choice between man and God. Either we choose God, which gives us our own limited sovereign rights, we answer to God, or we choose rule by man. That's going to transform human nature on earth and create a new uh, utopia. And it seems like the utopia is always some variation of an international ant colony where things like, will we give up our that which makes us unequal and different and we all become equal equal and the same. And, uh, and that these movements are based on it. The, the modern movement, I think, did start with the Illuminati. And I know when you mentioned the Illuminati in this country, People want to put on the tin hat and they think you're some nut conspiracy person. But the fact is that the Illuminati was is, is settled history in Europe. And it was written about by major European leaders, including Winston Churchill. It's not even a matter of dispute. The Whether or not it continues, I have no idea. It's a secret. Who knows? That's not even the important thing. The important thing is that they did lay out a certain number of principles that were revealed because they were confiscated by the Duke of uh, Bavaria when he arrested one of their couriers in 1780s and that they had info they had begun to infiltrate Masonic lodges and that those ideas were ultimately the end of all clericalism and the end of all kings and the creation of a one world government you know a new world order which is the word they used <clears throat> that's just a fact of history. Now, you know, if you want to get into a debate about whether or not this is an ongoing conspiracy by people to continue to operate behind the scenes, that's something that, I mean, I'm not experienced enough to know that because I don't, the, the biggest society I've ever been a member of is the YMCA. I mean, I don't <laughs> know what goes on in these things. But, but it seems to me that, and I will express the opinion that, yeah, I do think it is. But putting that aside, because I can't prove it, the ideas are predominant in the world today, in our Western civilization. This glorification of absolute equality, of a move toward a one world order, of ending borders, of ending national sovereignty, which is the greatest system of checks and balances the world's ever developed, and of this hyper-nationalist, socialistic form of government, where the government takes over as many aspects of the life of the individual as possible. You know, you mentioned, you know, a standing army, you know, national police, national education, national welfare, national health, you know, all these things which are coming about as a result of a very small elite who want to control the means of production. To use the classic term that is the definition of socialism. You know, and yet they, they tell the rest of us who are 
interested in our own sovereign rights and a limited government to protect those rights, that we're the nationalists, you know? Yeah. I mean, they want to open the borders to unlimited immigration. And yet, you know, as a way to, to, to further a world agenda. And we are told that, that somehow by standing up for our democratic rights, we're the ones who are involved in this, this conspiracy. So, you know, I think that the, the ideas and the ideals of the Illuminati, whether or not they're walking around today, they have become, they have been embraced by the establishment. What say you, Rick? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as I, I tried to explain in my article, I, I just used academic sources, and I was just trying to explain how uh, groups like the, the Freemasons, how they were influenced by the Bavarian Illuminati and the, the Rosicrucians, just trying to explain how this was a vehicle for popularizing enlightenment principles, French revolutionary principles, which, as you explained, were anti-clerical, uh, anti-monarchical, uh, very modernist, very modernist, basically. Yeah. And the that, first communist revolution. Yes, 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 yes. And that, and that, has, that has won out. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk to, to you so much, uh, Chuck, is because um, uh, w when I look at those movements, they were comprised of both Jews and Christians, and they had their reasons, and that reason was they had this Gnostic mindset, basically. And so when I see, for instance, alt-writers who uh, would just dismiss out of hand things said by someone like uh, Paul, Paul Gottfried, uh, for instance, uh, just because he is Jewish. Um, I just, I just think that that is so remarkably myopic. Um, and on the other hand, on the other hand, you, uh, there are there are um, you know, prominent uh, Jews who who would say, um, well, for instance, uh, uh, what could I say? Uh, reactionary thinking amongst Europeans. Well, that's that's uh, that's just dangerous because um, uh, you know we can we can look back and we can see you know for the past five hundred years. Uh, things have been very difficult for Jews, and they have. Jews have had to, because when nation states were established, Jews had to uh, show that they were in fact not a separate nation, and so they had to establish themselves as citizens, and then they had to establish uh, uh, power groups within uh, those those nation states. Um, so it was. It, it's been very difficult for them. Um, uh, and like you say, uh, Jews will say, okay, well, the natural progression of the nation states was towards something like uh, like Nazism. Yeah, so uh, Jews have always, um, well, Jews have for the past few centuries uh, very much been a part of liberalizing movements because it's how they can stay safe as a minority uh, within a nation state and not just be considered uh, a separate nation. And therefore, to have lesser rights, for instance. Uh, personally, I do think that uh, Jews were um, safer in some ways uh, in the in the, the the medieval period than they were um, during the rise of nation states, because uh, I thought it was. It, I think it was very easy um, for uh, monarchs or other bureaucratic leaders to uh, simply say, "Oh well." Um, the, uh, the the Jews have a lot of money. Uh, we need some money. Uh, we can just make an excuse. We can extract the wealth from them. There's a bit of a truncated version, but I think um, history uh, justifies what I have to to say there quite well. Um, yeah. So uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you so much is because um, I think it's very unfair. Uh, some of the things that Jews will say about um, Europeans and in European history. And I also think that uh, a lot of Europeans, particularly people who are um, associated with the, the alt-right today in the West, they have a lot of uh, negative things to say about Jews and they can be uh, extremely critical of them. What both sides are missing uh, and there's a lot of talking past each other, is that uh, the, the thing which unites 
those two movements and those two behaviors and actions that we don't like is actually one movement. And it's this Gnosticizing movement, it's the Gnostic mindset. Mm -hmm. And actually the traditional Jewish thinking and the traditional uh, Christian thinking uh, considers that to be heresy and does not go along with it. Yes, the Jews have a more difficult time because they do not have, uh, for instance, as you've said, uh, an authoritative pope and a, a college of cardinals and and various things like that, which means that it's it's impossible. It's impossible to say that um, you know we don't have free will um, and that we need to establish uh, a state and an artificial order in the world. You can't do that because it's basically heresy. So Jews have a harder problem with that. And they, they have a, a tougher time uh, fighting uh, the, the left uh, within, within their movement right. than do uh, Christians. That said, uh, this is all <laughs> very good uh, criticism yeah. of the left within Christianity and the left within Judaism and this general Gnostic uh, mindset, uh, which, is, which is bent on globalism, as, as you've said. Uh, but um, we're in the situation that we're in. We're in the world that we're in. Um, we, I think, as uh, traditionalists and uh, you know, very, very conservative uh, Christians and Jews, uh, we we're in a minority. Uh, but but the, the the thing I think would help each other a tremendous amount would be if we were to sort of join forces, as it were respect each other, understand what's going on within uh, our, our, our people groups and uh, intellectual movements and religions. And so just understand that, understand what is the actual enemy, what is the actual problem at hand, and uh, deal with it accordingly. So I was hoping to speak with you. No, today I mean, to sort of reach out yeah, to you, conversation. Sort of unite hands, as it were, yeah, you and right. to I say mean, that, uh, no, we, we needn't be afraid of each other, we needn't be attacking each other, uh, we can respect each other well, and uh, try to, to move forward yeah, and to try to have the correct message yeah. identified at the correct target and hopefully make a change because the way the world is going, the way the West is headed right now is uh, catastrophic. So I think we need to do that. It is. It's a very dangerous time. I and, can um, see that your screen is blank. No, no. It I says that it. I'm still live. You're, you're Let me living. check my internet connection. My internet connection is no, still fine. fine. So I'm guessing it's just me yeah. no, at the you're moment. Fine. You're, you're fine. Um, I'm not sure exactly how long you wanted the show to go on for. Well, well, we're reaching to um, the end. No, you're fine. I just want to... Uh, for about 50 minutes. Yeah, we probably should wrap it up. Um, I was planning on spending an hour. And yeah, we, we, so we'll I guess I can just hang on and uh, blather away as no, I no, no, no. We're, we're hopefully fine. Uh, come back, rejoin yeah, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll check my emails in the meantime. All right. Rick, thank you very so, much for joining me. We're having a couple of Okay. Problems. There's no emails from you. Uh, okay. So I'm, I'm just going to I'm just going to talk. All right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, my article was called uh, Modern Statism as Western Gnosticism. It was in two parts, and it's published at the Arctos Journal. The general idea of it is, as I've explained, that uh, there have been distinct currents running through uh, the history of Western civilization, uh, distinct uh, uh, psychologies which give rise to particular uh, religious persuasions. So I think uh, the, the Gnosticism within Judaism has given rise to, for instance, the kind of um, um, dominating um, elitism that we see amongst uh, leftists, uh, among the Jews, as, as Chuck has pointed out. Um, I, I think it's that psychology. And I think the same has happened in Christianity, which is why we saw the collapse of Christendom and the rise of modern nation states, uh, very centralized, what Thomas Hobbes uh, called the Leviathan state. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Hobbes, of course, saw that as being necessary because he too was a man of his time and he rejected 
free will. And so he was very much about establishing this sort of artificial order. So, why? Why do we have these two different psychologies? What are these two different psychologies which give rise to these two movements within the West? I see it as being either an acceptance of or a rejection of responsibility, personal responsibility for oneself, for one's family, for one's neighborhood, for one's larger community, for one's country or nation, uh, in the, the oldest sense of the word, one's people. And I think modernism has very much been about rejecting that and palming off as much responsibility as one can to the state, which today now acts as a middleman for pretty much every social interaction you have from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, including with one's own family, and in some cases, even with one's own self. Mm -hmm. And that's it. I think it's basically about personal responsibility. Debugging. So what I was going to talk about with Chuck was, well, where do we go from here? What can we do? Yeah, of course, we can educate ourselves and understand that that kind of Gnostic mindset about establishing an artificial order with an elite at the top is, um, obviously, we need to speak out against that and try and gently educate those around us as we have opportunity about the matter, suggest reading, for instance. But I think it's it's much more important than that. It's a bit sort of like what Jordan Peterson says about cleaning up your room and getting your act together. I think that's much more important. If you don't have that, just for example, the things that you do say when you do try to educate others will not be taken very seriously, especially by people uh, who do not educate themselves very much and they're quite materialistic and they're very uh, deeply involved in the things of this world and the, the bourgeois rat race of life. Uh, they won't take what you have to say very seriously. Uh, if you show yourself to have uh, some fortitude in your life, uh, it will bring a lot more weight uh, to your words. And also, uh, you have to start from, from square one. You have to start with yourself. You sort yourself out and uh, encourage others to do the same. There's pretty much nothing else you can do because that is the philosophy at the end of the day. I'm sure Chuck would have mentioned uh, the belief in uh, logos and uh, and free will yeah. and all of those things in Judaism and trying to get oneself spiritually right. Well, the whole idea is that, you, yes, you have free will, but so does everyone else. You have to reciprocate that. You have to respect that. Judaism and, is all about love. Uh, try to encourage others on that basis. Okay. And that is how a natural order will be established, a healthier one, uh, rather than the top-down, state-maintained, uh, coercive order that we, we have at present all over the world.